0: Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Gary Fisher, owner and director of Strawberry Fields Catering, who are at the forefront of catering in the Southwest region and who often travel to engagements across the entire UK. Gary, hello. Hello. Good morning, Matthew. Good morning. Thank you for coming on the program today. Uh, Now, normally, uh, we'd get straight into the subject of leadership, uh, but considering the ongoing COVID outbreak, we should start there. Of course, this has had a a major effect on the events industry around the country. How has it affected your business?
1: Um, Well, we last we last did an event um, the second week of March. Um, We our business we have three specific contracted wedding venues, um, all of those are obviously closed. Uh, we've had over 200 weddings, of either pers- mainly postponed to next year, but you know, a fair few have cancelled. Um, so at the moment, pretty much the vast majority are furloughed, and um, it looks like we're going to have a very busy year next year, if we're allowed to have it, um, but... You know who knows where you know, the social gathering thing is. Uh, if you can't social gathering, you can't really do weddings. And then, and I know obviously they've got a number on there for 30 at the moment, but um, you know 30 is no good to anybody. Our, our venues sort of seat up to 200.
0: Mm. And do you see uh, in the long term this uh, changing the way in which you do business?
1: Well, I would have said leadership really is all about responsibility. We. Uh, you know, in the current times, we the furloughed staff—they're all very, very nervous. Um, we, the way I'm approaching it, is initially when it was 80% of furlough, uh, we were paying 100%. So we like to think that we look after the staff, um, and all their jobs. I've already said to them, really, are secure simply obviously because the, the furloughing system has been a uh, an extreme help to us. And um, we, you know, at the end of the day, we've been trading 35 years. So my, my stance on it really is that I will personally finance the company and bankroll it until obviously work comes back. Um, so, but I think it seems to me an awful lot of businesses are not, are not taking the same stance.
0: And where would you say, uh, your leadership style, uh, derived from?
1: Well, my, my dad was a self-employed guy. Um, I maybe picked up some stuff from him. He was, uh, when he was alive, he was a, an extremely great support to me. Um, and, I had initially when I left school I had three years in the Navy, so maybe there's a bit of discipline there. Um other than that, um I've I've had I've had head chef roles before I uh joined Strawberry Fields. So I think it's just been a, a thing to that accrued really over the, the decades.
0: <laughs> now, of course, uh leadership comes in uh, many different forms um but all leaders at one point or another have to deal with conflict what's your method for resolving conflict
1: could you say that again please sorry I what's your method you.
0: what's your method for resolving conflict
1: uh well uh if i'm really really honest i'm not fantastic at it um i have had to deal with it obviously over the years i've had to let people go uh pull them up over various things um and just on a one-to-one basis obviously we're only a small company we've got uh 14 staff so we have instances where i have to deal with people and just one-to-one really um i have had legal assistance on a couple of occasions when things have got quite serious but you know things happen and so you have to deal with them and um you know, there's no point, I think. I think a long, long time ago when I was head chef, I used to be a bit headstrong and sort of throw my toys out of the pram. But um, not like that anymore, really. You just got to sort of sit down and explain things and get things resolved. So and I, I like to think I've got the respect of all the staff. So, yeah, it's not that difficult.
0: Mm. Now, what would you say to young people considering a career in catering?
1: Um, well, there's, there's there's plenty of opportunities certainly um, for people starting out. You know, you can you can travel the world easily uh, in in the industry. Um, it's really just a case of you know hard work, really. You know, even if you get linked to one, you start off as a trainee or whatever, even in a kitchen in one of the big hotel groups or whatever. You know that are all based around the world. You know your Hiltons and so on and so forth. You know they're global, and uh, if you get up to management, you can just move around the hotels around the world. And um, so yeah, it's uh, it's not all washing pans and sort of just chopping veg. You know you can you can certainly uh, have a, a very good career in catering, and it's a very big industry.
0: Now, unfortunately, our time together is drawing to its close. But what does the next twelve months have in store for Strawberry Field?
1: Well, as I as I touched on be- before, Matthew, I think the, our next, our book of next year, because all the venues have moved the majority of the bookings uh, into next year. Next year's book of events is looking fantastic. <laughs> uh, so, as long as as long as we can do them. Um, everything's going to be great. You know, there's one or two other venues that may well come online. Um, But I think once that happens, we'd be at our optimum, our maximum then. So, yeah, it's all looking very good next year. I've just got to finance it while we're throughout all the losses at the moment.
0: Well, I do wish you and the entire team at Strawberry Field Catering the best of luck over the next uh, few months. And it would be wonderful to have you back at the program at some point in the future. But for now, Gary, thank you.
1: Great. Thanks very much. Thank you.
0: That was Gary Fisher, owner and director of Strawberry Field Catering. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Scott Chaloner's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst.
2: And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning.
3: Uh, good morning. How are you?
2: Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it?
3: It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might, might last. Absolutely. Thunderstorm. It's, uh, it's lovely.
2: It is certainly after a storm. And, um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines
3: i'd want him to bury it um I, i've asked that question again question asked a bit um i've had a good run uh, with, with this record and goodness me I, I, it's nearly 60 years i guess if, if uh, we're looking at 2022 no i'd want him to bury it hey a, a for him he's a fantastic player uh tremendous goal scorer and if anybody i'd like to um Repeat what I achieved. It will be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely, and I want England to do well. I mean, I I want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter, and I just I really want the country to do well in in anything in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I want, I'm up wanting to bury it, and I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if if. He can achieve that, but more importantly, that England, England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago, and it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my uh, my achievement. It's about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three, in one sense, is isn't uh, say material, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team.
2: Mm exactly consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership which is of course what the leaders council is all about recognizing that and promoting that for the future but if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966 when you were bearing down on goal I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time and there's quite a bit of a joke about that but there's something else that I'm actually interested in I understand we all know what happened the ball nestled in the top corner England one 4 and lifted the World Cup but you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before haven't you
3: yes I think people um, I, I've off- I, t- I, I recall exactly what's amazing I can recall exactly what I was thinking um, at that moment obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game I knew the game was nearly finished I, as the ball came to me initially I was actually my back to goal I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park, and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth, but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game's nearly finished. I'm thinking if the game's nearly finished, I'm having a whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the, beyond the sand into the crowd, by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans Pilkowski, the German keeper, by that time, surely the game has got to be over. But as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss hit it and, it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which tried, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours.
2: It just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risk.
3: Absolutely, yes, absolutely. yes. Sir. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk. In a sense, because the game is unfinished, but that that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making it. But it's going to be a control on that risk, not not stupid risk. In, in mm-hmm. all walks of life, an element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't uh, get be successful in terms of long term leadership if you just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances, I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward.
2: And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, to Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again who were going to the European Championships but that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the Health Service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966?
3: Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for, w- for what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, up, but there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, when you begin to realise during these turbulent times, how absolutely vital in uh, important is sense, to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the the amount of people who are injured almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on and and also into what was also for me fantastic all these people from different, different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same you you Union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, it's very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that, who's been around a long time, would still say he is the best coach he has worked with. And that's, just, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's... It's important you prepare and teach and coach the players to be, to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making for those players were disciplined and um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined, moving from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate? Um, as, as, I was, it was just, uh, amazing. So I think Ron was, I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a, you've got a, a coach who's is, who is a team coach who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, the wrong reason of passing a coach person to our who's then managed from the discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club; you're managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the, the country is is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over different character strengths, players into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. So Alfred Ramsey was was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can not say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think if leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important, um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers have, have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management; they have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're sensible enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching you or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after you're playing, into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people make mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think like well, that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all sorts of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning it's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from them and continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their their careers
2: Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, During your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood, but I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and froing between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true?
3: <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When in, in those uh, medieval days, you there weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenways, so it was called in Chelford, we that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite close to it. It was a cul-de-sac. It's not a big long road uh, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So it wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, in as many cars in those days. So uh, we played acro- across the str- across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal. And so it's always a three of us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, flying, you know, and making balls of wood gliders. And a uh, nice guy, but just didn't, didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of uh, course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they... Um, Took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you, there's nowhere else to play apart from the streets. and uh, we well, were actually, but that that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true.
2: And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you?
3: Well, my father was obviously the the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rossdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. I was born in Ashton line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was... Probably I was the eldest of three when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was uh, had a big influence. Going back to that third Golden World Cup in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house uh, somewhere in Chelmsford. And he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed. And I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton, even Jack Charlton, his brother. Didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic, but I was pretty, pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a footballing father. I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, And what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school-leading age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the, what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school the age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football, it's just that uh, that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football, and I was pretty reasonably good. There was no big focus on me uh, as a great school board player. Nobody was scouting me or, uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father, um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about, as I, I kind of put it between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood, um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre half at school. Um, he, uh, Tell I'm going to try you up front and put me up front in the game. And then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically.
2: And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it?
3: Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, The sort of messing about, but t- t- between the two, I had uh, one first class game for Essex, at, as you said, Egberth in, um, in Liverpool and I think I got naught and naught not out. I think something I we won the game. Funny, I took a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, v. Lancashire up up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap, and I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season early games for those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for mm. a big field player. So um, quite changed dramatically. That was 62-63 season, the three years of all the World Cup.
2: what was Gordon like as a leader on the field?
3: Well, first of all, he, he was a great... Uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny, enough, I didn't realise... It's funny how you look at... I When Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and they uh, were showing a lot of videos of Banksy, uh, programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realize how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, not, and not just tipping balls. agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered lovely lovely man the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet but he was a joke he always had a, a joke for you every time you met sometime he would have a new joke and uh people um, talk about him and who uh, are close to him and remember what a what a um, a joke he was and they're the two things that really stick out for banksy and we were very lucky very lucky of course to have that kind of And you need that kind of quality um, as a a world-class player when you win a World Cup. You need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banksy is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play as a world-class player, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left-back, I'd always argue, was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup Some world-class players. And Banksy was up there, not with the best, to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them and, and um, obviously Tony Wadding saw that and if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did and um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea he lost a bit of weight and uh, although he was a little bit in himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me what he was, was a fantastic player. He is, uh, was, he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across, the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slight bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold mm. without any shadow of a doubt. You know, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times uh, getting, uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those, uh, those few months. And I think it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club.
2: And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England?
3: Um, well, I think Ireland was just still sort of well with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in in America, it was the early days of. Um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that it was a great time at the club, and I was fortunate to play with Boat City uh, for three years, and, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the, uh, the, the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi-final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club, and very really close. We actually, I think we played Ajax in, in, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course. But I think, uh, as, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was. Oh, I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West, R- West Brom actually got up that year, but i made very little contributions to that success that I've had. So, um, yes, it, uh, this, the American experience was just fantastic. I never thought of long term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and, um, uh, two daughters, and my oh, I think she was uh, pregnant with her her daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a, I always joke about Ireland. I was there for, for about I think, a month, I think it was. And I enjoyed the experience and I earned a few quid and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. <laughs> new kitchen.
2: <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that... You realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend, as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career.
3: Yes, I think it's. I think the that kind of, uh, whatever the word correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered, sort of comes maybe uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not so sort of immediately after you finish playing, but in the long term when. Um, uh, and I always joke with people introduce me uh, to other people or introduce me on stage uh, as a legend. And, and I always and say you, you only start being called a legend when you're over seventy. And I think the, the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens, and you think more about it, or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly. Um, I felt during the. Time after I finished playing or managing or playing things during my, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looks at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years probably.
2: For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sports, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them?
3: Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management on mental courses there's certain characteristics when the successful boss is, is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alpha Ramsey, because I take it into my, my business life and even fa- uh, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss. You move them out. And I think that's the simple one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alpha Ramsey period even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not you know, completely complying with everything and they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was and even some with great ability. I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that that for me is the the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life.
2: Mm, ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela in fact that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways and I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed.
3: Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice, yes.
2: So Jeff... Thank you ever so much for joining us on the, uh, the program this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the program in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the program. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again.
0: This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye.